0: this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Alison DeAngelis.
1: I'm Adam Forestine, And I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, January 25th, and here's what we're gonna talk about this week.
1: Break out the tiny violins, people, because biotech VCs are feeling a bit uncomfortable these days. Allison will explain. And we'll
2: also discuss this week's happenings around biotech, including a setback for Gilead Science's cancer business and another smallish acquisition.
0: All that after a word from our sponsor. Hi there, I'm Tori Bosch, editor of Stat's First Opinion Column and host of the First Opinion Podcast.
1: And I'm Jesse McQuarters,
2: editor of Stat Brand Studio.
0: We're excited that STAT is launching a brand new community only for our subscribers called STAT Plus Connect. It's an online home for discussion, news, job postings, workshops, and more, all centered around the life sciences and biomedical research.
2: It's also a chance to peek behind the curtain at STAT and interact with our writers and staff, You know, the people that really bring our great journalism and content to you every day.
0: And in fact, I made a course on how to crack first opinion. I lay out the kinds of essays I'm looking for, my editorial process, some writing tips, and much more.
2: And I actually made one about Stat Brand Studio, sharing a little bit about what the heck a brand studio is in the first place, but also some of the things we do to bring the content of our marketing partners to life.
0: You know, it sounds like I'm gonna have to hop on to take your course.
2: And Tori, yours sounds amazing, so I'm gonna definitely check out yours at connect.statnews.com.
0: Well, fantastic. I'll see you on Stat Plus Connect.
1: So before we get to biotech, can we talk about the Oscar nomination?
0: <laughs> Absolutely, we can. We're gonna rebrand this as a um, movie podcast.
1: Yeah, just quickly. But I- I've seen six of the ten best movie nominations, which is really good for me because it- usually I have not seen very many, th- many of them at all. So,
0: which was your favorite? Which should win Best Picture?
1: I want to hear Damien's choice first before I. I'm, I'm a kind of intimidated mm-hmm. by Damien's. Um, <laughs> Movie. Damien uh, is
0: our in-house auteur. Oh
1: no! So I don't want to. I don't want to sound stupid. So Ma- Damien, what's your? Just quickly give us your your. Four, pick.
2: I don't even know the ten off the top of my head. You know what I liked a lot was a movie
1: called Showing Up that wasn't nominated. But Damien, um, you have to pick one right, that's right. actually what's been that? nominated. Come on. Don't uh, give us some I think, a, don't give us a movie that no one else has ever heard of.
0: <laughs> no, was that is showing up the Michelle Williams that's one right. where she's an artist? Yeah,
1: from the the great Ha-ha. Kelly Reichardt. I know. I'm gonna say um, that Damien likes past lives. That's that's your choice. Is that your
2: pick? I, I did like past lives a lot. I think that Killers of the Flower Moon is a pretty
1: singular thing. This oh, is not a, a hot take okay. or even an interesting mm. one. I'm recommending
2: a Three hundred thousand hour movie okay. about the horrors of American history, but I thought it was good. I
1: watched that at home on streaming because I didn't want to sit in a theater for six just hours. as Marty intended. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. You know, I hope I hope good things happen for that uh, Marty Scorsese guy. He's got potential. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's an up and comer. Uh, Allison, what's yeah. your pick?
0: I think that Oppenheimer will take it. I think that Oppenheimer. like Oppenheimer was just universally appreciated.
1: Yeah, I, I liked of the movies that have been nominated. I liked Oppenheimer the best. That's probably the conventional pick, the boring conventional pick. OK, yeah. let's go. Let's talk about biotech now. Sorry, guys, for if you are listening to that. <laughs> um, Damien, there was, we had, you know, we would have been like, you know, kind of obsessing about M&A, you know, back in, we were all at JP Morgan in San Francisco, and then there was a little bit of a lull, but we had a, a smallish deal this week, so we should talk about it. Um, why don't you give us some of the details? That's right. So the French pharmaceutical
2: firm Sanofi, Sanofi, either way, uh, is acqu- it? Is, is not- <laughs> oh no, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I swear. I'm so I've sorry heard people
0: from up. this company pronounce it both ways.
1: Yeah, they yeah. don't even know how to do it. That's true.
2: Much yep. like Oppenheimer, I am suddenly in horror and ashamed of what I have done uh, with my career. But no, so that company <laughs> acquired another one whose name I also don't really know how to pronounce. In the form of Inhibrex, I think we've decided uh, for two point two billion. Dollars. And Inhibrex is a company developing uh, an experimental medicine for a progressive liver disease. It's a relatively small amount of money. It's the kind of thing, however, that I think uh, this is the sort of deal that when people say, I look forward to more deals in 2024, they're kind of talking about this size, or at least people who I think live in a world closer to reality. What I thought was curious or interesting about the Inhibrex deal is that they carved out what will basically be a stay-behind company not dissimilar to what uh the migraine firm biohaven did when they were semi-acquired by pfizer and i think that's that's an emerging trend i think that's
1: that's notable
0: in, yeah in that, biotech. Was,
1: Is that, that was interesting because yeah, it's like yeah sanofi slash sanofi they basically bought a drug <laughs> right they didn't really buy Inhibrix. I mean, although I guess it will be structured as an acquisition, and and this, by the way, was another uh, Centerview Eric Tocat deal, and <laughs> there was a tweet. We had an Eric Tocat tweet. <laughs> woo, woo, woo. Alert, alert. Um, but yeah, Jamie, I think you, you raised an interesting point there. I, you know, So they, they acquired this drug for this lung disease called AATD, and then the rest of the company, uh, the rest of Inhibrix's pipeline is sort of being spun out into a new company which will also be called inhibrix and will also be run by I, the same management team so it was kind of like sanofi's so like ah, i want this drug we don't want the rest of it and it is you know and, and i think that there is you know like you said to mention biohaven did the same thing with when when they were acquired by by pfizer there were a bunch of uh, a bunch of drugs in biohaven's pipeline that pfizer didn't want strategically it wasn't didn't sort of fit with what they do so they stayed within uh, sort of a new co-biohaven. Bio, I mean, it is interesting because you can think of maybe in the past where these deals would have happened and, you know, they a company would have maybe wanted one drug and not the others, but those they would have acquired those other drugs anyway, and then those drugs could have sort of languished, you know, in the, on the shelves of the larger pharma company and really not gone anywhere. Um, but this is sort of an opportunity to sort of take those drugs that the company strategically, the big pharma company doesn't want and uh, spin them out and, uh, you know, maybe successfully develop them or not. But, you know, we'll see where that goes.
0: I just really question at the end of the day how the new, I'm going to call them the new inhibitors. it's like new Coke, but the new inhibrics um, <laughs> is supposed to get investors excited about a pipeline of products that a big pharma company didn't want to the extent where they acquired the old inhibrix <laughs> and then kind of shuttled off these other products.
1: That is a good. That is a good point. I, yeah, I think yeah that could be a tough. You know, it, it depends because if you look at if you look at the new Biohaven, uh, I think folks are kind of generally interested in what. Uh, what that pipeline looks like. I, I met with them actually at J.P. Morgan, and um, you know that company has done relatively well, sort of post the fi- post Pfizer the close of the Pfizer deal. Um, and then that was a case where just you know the, like those drugs just didn't sort of fit into the Pfizer you know whatever their focus is. Um, in this case, Alison, you know it, it's true like you know they the 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 drugs that inhibrix the new inhibrics will have are uh, mostly oncology drugs. Um, You know, so why didn't Sanofi want these oncology drugs? Uh, It's a good question. Um, And, you know, oncology, tough, right? Super competitive. Uh, And, you know, I don't know if there was a lot of value uh, sort of given to those pipeline, those cancer pipeline drugs before. So um, that will be, that'll actually be really interesting to watch to sort of see when this company does spin out, to your point, Allison, and see whether or not, uh, how well it performs and whether they can sort of attract uh, new investors.
0: Yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out that what Sanofi did end up acquiring. So it's this um, disease called AATD, which I have to say, like I saw the press release and it kind of gave me a little bit of a like a, a throwback vibe. It like jogged something in my memory because AATD, like when the gene editing world was getting up and and running initially, was one of the first indications. So. What Sanofi acquired, I think, is in is heading into phase two, if I'm correct. Um it's not a, a
1: I think they're in phase three. I do think so. Um
0: Okay. They're further yeah. ahead. Yep. Thank you for the correction. Yep. Um but so that's it's it's not a, a gene therapy or, or anything. Um I, I believe it's an antibody drug. Um, but there are there is a pipeline kind of right over its shoulder of Intelia is developing a gene insertion therapy for AATD that they're about to start clinical trials on. CoroBio has an RNA editing treatment. You know, there's there's a couple of other companies in in the kind of the genetic medicine space that are kind of quickly coming up over this drug shoulder. So also I think the long-term value of what Sanofi bought will be interesting to Review in the years to come.
1: Yeah, this is a. It's a. It's not the sexiest drug uh, that Inhibrix has. You know, and essentially what it is, it's a. The people who have AATD have a an enzyme that's missing that causes liver and lung damage. Um, and there is a treatment for it now, and it's just essentially you replace. It's like an enzyme replacement therapy, but it's um, it's made. It's kind of hard to make, and it's not very convenient. So you know, what Inhibrix has is a more convenient, um, easier to make. Uh, sort of synthesized enzyme replacement. It's not sexy, um, and to your point, Alison, there are um, a more sort of curative approaches that are being um, developed for the disease. Although I know when I when I looked at that, I looked into this. You know, Vertex has has a program in this, and it's had some sort of mixed results. And um, but even you know there is there is sort of a case to be made that even with some of these sort of more um, again I'll sort of call them curative um, or 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 drugs that sort of target the more underlying symptoms that there there could be still a need for one of these re- enzyme replacement therapies. So that's probably a little bit of the play but but it isn't, you know, yeah, like you know, we 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 can talk a lot about sort of you know gene therapies or other approaches that are more again more curative and this is not this is not one of those. So venture capitalists,
2: it's a hard pivot but I've already made it. Uh, you know, when we talk about them or when they are discussed more broadly, they are often being uh, mocked for their inscrutable posts on LinkedIn. Or we hear, you know, people who run companies bemoaning the difficulty currently uh, that they have raising money from venture capitalists, and in many cases, the the onerous terms that those VCs try to put on the fundraises that some of these private biotech companies need to survive. But we should spare a thought um, if, if anyone is willing, for the VCS themselves because it, it often goes undiscussed that you know the money doesn't materialize they, they are not generally independently wealthy people. they have to go out and raise the funds that they invest from much larger financial institutions. And Allison, you had a story this week that I thought was really fascinating looking at how the downturn that we talk about so much, usually from the perspective of biotech companies, has, Itself put kind of a squeeze on many of the VCs that are so often complained about.
0: Yeah, it's something that I I wanted to look into because we did like we are still seeing funds being raised, but behind the scenes, when I talk to venture capitalists, everyone from like young companies to like very like people who are like very established in their careers um, is noting how difficult the last couple of years have been, and. I think that's like exemplified in nothing other than this data point, which came from PitchBook. So, as of the end of Q3, uh, life sciences and like biotech VC firms had raised just 28 funds in the first three quarters of 2023, uh, which was, at that point, I mean, the lowest fundraising amount in over a decade. Is that the um, we number don't quite of know funds the year.
1: or is that dollar amounts? Like
0: That's the number of funds themselves. Mm, okay. The dollar amounts also were down though not quite at the decade low level. I think it ha- I think it was like the lowest dollar amount since like 2017 or 2018. Um but it's like there has been a notable drop. Um not only in the kind of like f- compared to 2021 perspective, but compared to 2019 or compared to 2018 perspective.
2: Well, it's interesting, well, for a million reasons. I think one of the things you, you point out in your story is that probably a contributing factor is that the relative dearth of IPOs in biotech means that there's less capital flowing back to the people who invest in VCs in the first place in recent years, which probably has an effect on their willingness to put more money into it. But I mm-hmm. wondered. You know, whenever people talk about LPs, the limited partners, the pension funds and sovereign wealth funds that invest in VCs, they often talk about them investing on much, much larger time horizons than almost any other player in the market, just by virtue of the size of the money and, and the way that works. And so is it like an ill portent for biotech that the big, big money appears to be somewhat souring on it, seeing that they're supposed to be investing over like decade-long or longer time horizons?
0: That's a good question, Damian. It's it's kind of hard to say. I mean, you know, the venture world kind of trails, you know, what what we're talking about with IPOs. It's almost like the ripple effects of that, like, kind of take a little bit of time to hit venture capitalists because of, you know, this this kind of long time frame and that, you know, theoretically, you've got companies that, are heading into IPOs that are at the clinical stage. Venture capitalists invest much earlier. Um, But to your point about the limited partners and the kinds of people who are handing over their money to venture capitalists to invest, um, yeah, because the IPO market has been so diminished over the last couple of years, they're not getting their money back like they used to. They are simply like a lot of them have like positions that they're kind of like holding and waiting to see how they play out. And that is absolutely affecting new fundraising. But if you kind of zoom out, um looking at venture capital for every industry, you know, if you look at tech, it's a very similar story. It's nothing necessarily that's indicative to biotech. I would have a million dollars if I had a dollar for every Every time somebody said, you know, the science has never been better than it is right <laughs> now. But um, there are just like simply larger economic factors that are impacting all venture capitalists. And there are some areas in which LPs are are like being swayed to invest more money. You know, a lot of uh, the VCs that I talked to who have been raising new funds uh, pointed out that uh Surprised to to very few people, but like AI is proving to be a big selling point um, when raising new funds, and you know, kind of computational biology and all these new tools that are are being developed, um, and so that's resonating with LPs. But beyond that, there is there is a little bit of like a holding pattern for a lot of them.
1: And also in your story, you you mentioned that you pointed out that uh, as VC funds. Or venture, capital, venture capitalists go out to raise more money, and you know they send emails or they have these meetings with these, uh, with these big pension funds and the like. That um, those funds, the pension funds, are asking for what you said. You know, you called it like more advantageous terms when it comes to sort of running. give us a little bit of an example. Like what, what, what is that dynamic like?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so one of the examples that I, I point out in the story is that um, multiple firms, you know, VC firms, told me that. They've had these, you know, pension funds, family offices, what have you, anybody who they're kind of approaching to raise money from. um, They're not only asking for like a really sweet spot in the new fund that they're raising, you know, like a nice uh, placement in that fund. But some of them are also kind of going beyond that and are saying, hey, you know what? We'd like for our money, we'd like equity in like the VC firm. Like, we'd like equity in your ownership, which is something that is like it's not unheard of, but it's not terribly usual. And it has been happening more as a lot of LPs are are kind of like, well, like we do have dollars to put to work. So we are in the advantage. Um, most of the firms who are kind of fielding those requests are Younger firms, you know, with that have maybe raised like this is their first fund or they've ra- maybe only raised a fund or two. They're what are kind of called emerging managers. And it's, you know, at that point, it's kind of like, you know, you're the young folks on at the table, a little bit less. Um, you know, you're a little bit at the disadvantage in these negotiations because you don't have these longevity of relationships. Um, but it's it's been interesting to, to hear from them that. They're just noticing that there are just more strings attached when they are getting LPs who are interested in actually investing in their funds. Yeah, and
1: I was going to ask you, I wonder if this is a factor, again, is this are like the the really well-established venture capital firms that have raised lots of money in, in different funds and have a really, you know, have a stronger track record. Are they are, are they sort of seeing the same thing, the same phenomenon happening? Or is it really kind of more the newer the newer funds?
0: yeah it's more the newer funds that are getting some of these unique terms being pitched to them, but even you know people who have been working in venture capital and have are at firms that have been investing for several years are kind are feeling the pressure of the market downturn at large. I talked to um uh Antoine, who's with Sofanova Partners, who has been investing um for he said 30 years and this is one of this is like the toughest market that he's ever experienced they just raised uh last year i think a 200 million dollar like digital medicine fund um and that was a process that like thank he was basically said like thank god we have like very good relationships with limited partners who have been investing with us for a while because that's how we're able to raise $200 million, which doesn't seem like a lot. But in this kind of market is is nothing to kind of, you know, turn your nose up at.
2: So Gilead Sciences is probably the most successful virology biotech company uh, ever. I guess it's a small list. But the point is they've been superlatively successful at finding treatments for viral infections. And for the past few years, they have embarked on an effort to replicate, or at least somewhat replicate, that success in oncology. And it has been a little quixotic. And so that leads us to this week, we got news that uh, an antibody drug conjugate that Gilead paid upward of $20 billion to, to acquire and to develop had some disappointing clinical results in a study in lung cancer. Now, in on its own, this is, you know, one clinical setback. They happen all the time in biotech. But zooming out, it is kind of indicative of a trend here uh, with Gilead, where many of the things that it has paid, in many cases, quite a bit of money for to develop in oncology has led to, if not outright failure, then disappointment vis-a-vis what Gilead paid for it. And Adam, I don't know, is this, I feel like we've kind of had this conversation numerous times over the years, like the state of Gilead, but this seemed like an appropriate time to dig it back up because uh, what, what is going on here? I mean, what what is the prescription for Gilead to actually make success out of this? Like, are they trying to do too much all at the same time? Would they be better served focusing on one aspect of oncology or are they just making the wrong bets?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I think... ever since Daniel Day took over Gilead and that was back in March, 2019, you know, cancer, uh, developing or or building out a cancer franchise business has been kind of a strategic, has been a strategic priority at at Gilead to the point where, you know, they, their goal is to have about a third of their product revenue uh, coming from uh, cancer drugs by 2030. Um, Right now they're at like a, Right now, it's like 10% of their revenue comes from cancer. They do about a $3 billion run rate uh, in cancer. So, you know, they're relatively small, but they want to grow. And, you know, to your point, Damien, and what you mentioned, you know, this drug, Tridelby, they spent a lot of money to acquire it. Um, And it's an antibody drug conjugate. And it was very, obviously, those are very hot these days. Um, Most of the sales of Tridelby right now are in breast cancer, Um, you know, they've been trying to expand, they want to expand that into lung cancer because, you know, obviously lung cancer is a very large market opportunity for cancer. Um, And, you know, they have, they really kind of have not, this the trial that came out this week on Monday, uh, you know, didn't work. Uh, so it's a setback for them um they 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 continue to run additional studies in other you know any kind of other stages of lung cancer the verdict is not not out on whether tridobie will have a presence in lung cancer but i think that a lot of people look at it and probably think that you know there's a lot of risk there that they're just not going to be able to um, develop that drug and reach the sort of the, the revenue potential that they thought which Which sort of led me to think about this because uh, where Gilead is really successful in cancer is CAR-T therapy, right? You know, they bought Kite, uh, which is a company developing patient-specific CAR-T treatments for blood cancers. And that has been, you know, it took a little while, but that has been uh, the most successful part of Gilead's cancer business. Uh, It it accounts for about 60% of their cancer sales right now. And so... I I sort of wonder whether Gilead sort of looks at all this and says, you know, that's what we're good at. Uh, We're really good at CAR-T, uh, and we should sort of double down on CAR-T and sort of make that more—that's kind of—that's what we're good at, and we we can expand that, and that's where we can excel, Um, which— lead me led me to sort of think about, well, where are they going in Car T? Uh, where is kite moving? And you know, they have this relationship. they have a partnership with a company called Arcelix, which is developing uh, a Car T uh, product for multiple myeloma, which is a very large category. Um J and J has a approved Car T uh, it for multiple myeloma called Carvicty. that's um, I think did about five hundred million dollars last year and could do about a billion dollars this year. The problem there is that they can't. JJ's running into massive amounts of manufacturing issues. They can't really make it. Um, there's just you know there's a shortfall. There's patients are on waiting lists. Um, Kiliad does a really good job of making car T's. Like they are, they are the best uh, car T manufacturing company in the world, uh, and so what I was sort of thinking about, and I wrote about this this week, you know, just thinking that that relationship that Gilead has with Arcelex, which right now is just kind of a, it's a partnership between these two companies, um, that had that in the sort of, you know, thinking about the Tridelvy setback, that relationship between Gilead and Arcelex becomes a lot more important, I think, strategically to Gilead to the point where you sort of wonder whether, you know, Gilead sort of, you know, tries to buy Arcelix. And I think that that's a, there's a, there's a real possibility that you know somewhere you know maybe at the end of the year when there's more data on this excel uh, on this arcelix uh CAR-T product in multiple multiple myeloma next year that, that that happens and to your broader point we talk about sort of this referendum on Gilead you know it hasn't you know under under Dan o'day I mean the company hasn't done it hasn't done terrible. I mean, you know, if you, if you just want to judge it by the stock price, I mean, they're sort of middle of the road stock performance wise. I mean, there are companies that have done worse and, you know, the broader biotech market has, has sort of underperformed relative to Gilead over that time period. Um, but, you know, I think just for the amount of time and energy that they spend and the, and the money that they have spent in cancer, like they have not necessarily gotten the return that they expected in that I think shareholders or investors expected.
0: Remind me, Adam, how much did Gilead spend on the acquisition that brought them Trodelvi?
1: I think it was like twenty-one, 21 billion dollars. Twenty-one billion, I believe. Twenty-one billion dollars. So, yeah, it was a lot. A lot. It was a big <laughs> it's deal. A lot. Um, and you know, I, I think we, you know, we often we often sort of look back and say, and it's easy to sort of Monday morning quarterback if that's the term, and say, Oh, well, they overpaid. And yeah, of course they probably overpaid. But I think that if Trodel if Trodelvi would have um, succeeded in some clinical trials and sort of been growing faster and maybe hit on this lung cancer study that came out this week. Then you know people maybe wouldn't worry as much about whether they're you know whether they overpaid or not. Um, but you know, of course, we look back and we say, oh, well, they paid twenty-one billion dollars. That's a ton of money, and they're really not getting, you know, they're not getting twenty-one billion dollars worth of tridelvi. Although they, you know, again, they've got a lot of studies. They they still. At least publicly, they still really believe in that drug, and they continue to run lots of clinical trials, trying to find other areas, other types of cancer, you know, um, where where it may have a benefit for patients.
2: Well, one thing I was going to say, in fairness to Gilead, is that I mean, this isn't Monday morning quarterbacking. This is quarterbacking years removed from the game itself. But when they paid, I believe it was upward of eleven billion or twelve billion dollars for Kite Pharma to get this CAR T therapy, that as you mentioned, is now perceived as the only jewel in their oncology business that was universally regarded as an overpay. They yeah, bought it. It was yeah. what yeah, was something right. of an adhere for sentiment around Car T. There was serious concern about just how broadly applicable this technology would be, and now many years in the future. Um, like I said, that's that. I don't know if they, anyone would argue that they underpaid, but you know that looks like a good deal. And so, in fairness, I have no idea what's going to happen with Tre But in fairness, it does take often years for these things to play out. So there may yet be a kind of restitution yeah. and we, for the you know the and i think we sort of deal. we
1: undersell the importance of manufacturing um, when it comes to these well it comes to anything right because it's sort of manufacturing is a little bit of a black box and Little, it's kind of in the weeds and we don't talk about it very much. But, you know, when it comes to a CAR-T product that is that is made, each each of these treatments, right, is made uh, for, it's personalized, it's made for each patient. And so the ability to make those and make them relatively quickly, you know, these are patients who have cancer. You have to make them quickly to deliver them to the patient. Um, you know, when you make them, you want to make sure that they actually work, that they're effective. Like, you know, there's no, you know, you're not re- you're not having a lot of sort of manufacturing rejects um, and that is an issue, um, but it's one where uh, Kite does really well. I mean, they are widely acknowledged to be the best car T manufacturing company in the world. They do better than... J and J, as I mentioned, they do better than Novartis. Uh, I, arguably, I think they do better than Bristol. So I think you know that is a real value, and anyone that sort of comes to them, you know, as a partner developing a CAR-T, that's a real advantage. I think to have a company like that that actually can make them And it, and it means a lot to patients and doctors because, like, for instance, in the in the multiple myeloma world, you hear stories of uh, doctors who have patients with multiple myeloma who who have to wait like months sometimes for, uh, for a, a CAR-T treatment to be made for them, um, or that they're not, there are no slots available, like their patients get put on waiting lists. So that's a, that's a significant issue.
2: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
1: Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
2: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your predictions for what will win Best Picture uh, and why Bo is Afraid wasn't nominated at all. You can do all of that by sending us an email at
1: readoutloud at
0: statnews.com.
1: If you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: See you next week.